let me tell you guys what I've noticed. I've noticed that no one no longer sits in these chairs right here. So um, just so you know, and uh, Facebook Live is uh, down right now, so we're not we're not live. Um, I get a lot. I get a hard time from my buddies. They say there's no one here. So I just want to let you know, because you won't sit in here, uh, it causes me a lot of trouble. A lot of trouble. So what I'm going to, oh, God bless you, Amos Domus. So, so what I may do is I may, uh, I may shrink, I may shrink everything. We're going to rope these sections off over here. Bring the chairs in real tight. Man, you guys are awesome. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Do some panoramas. That's right. Uh, Diego, if, we, uh, if Facebook Live happens to come back up, just um, give me a high sign. Do y'all, re- do y'all recognize that the high sign? Fred Kirby, Little Rascals. Yeah. See it... Um, and just so you know, since I'm down on the floor, I'm, I'm one of these tunnel vision kind of people. I can't see over here. So I might not talk to those over here on the wing. So I'm sorry if I don't. If I was on the stage, that's no problem. But being down here on the floor, that's a little bit tougher for me. So anyway, you guys doing well? Feeling good? You look good. You look good. Sun is shining. Praise the Lord. Oh, man. It freaked me out at first. I walked out of the house. It's like, whoa, I felt like a vampire. Man, I need my sunglasses on. Whoa. So I'm, I'm thankful for the, uh, the sun. Uh, l- let me tell you guys, um, tonight I'm going to move through a lot of information. And so when I sat down and tried to think through what the notes would be like, I came up with a blank page, but I, I decided to make the deal with you. I decided to make the deal with you that um, if you want a copy of my notes, just shoot me an email to pastor at rockyriverchurch.com, and I'll make sure that, um, that Karen sends you a copy, because there's, there's so much stuff that I need to move through. I'm just not sure how you would do. I'm not trying to insult you by any means. And Sharon probably takes better notes than I take. But um, I just thought the easiest thing to do would be let you catch what you can catch. And then I'll send you my notes if you want them. So with that said, let's just jump in. So l- l- let me remind you about where we are in history. We're talking about the age of imperial Christianity. So when you hear that word imperial, what that ought to imply, well, you would use imperial to talk about a state government, you know, the imperial government of China. So when I say imperial, the age of imperial Christianity, what what you should start thinking is, okay, this is where the church starts to get structure. This is where the church really starts to organize. 
And, and those things in and of themselves, that, that's fine. That, that's certainly not a bad thing. But what happens to the church that is a bad thing? And I won't, I won't belabor this here because I'm going to kind of talk about it throughout. Is the church picks up not only the best practices of their government, but the worst practices as well. They, they pick up on some good things, but they certainly pick up on some bad things. So when we talk about the age of the imperial church or imperial Christianity, what we're talking about is roughly A.D. 312 or A.D. 313 to about A.D. 590. Um, during this time, and you heard me say it last week, I'm going to say it again this week and probably will say it again next week, maybe even the following week, but we should be out of the age of imperial Christianity next week. The major thing that happens during this time period is that the church moves from being persecuted to preferred. When, when the calendar flips over from 399 A.D. to 400 A.D., about the, the turn of, of the fourth century, the church goes from being this small group of people, this minority group of people who are being persecuted to becoming a group of people that are preferred and promoted by the Roman government. So th think about it. Almost in, a, in, in one swoop, the church goes from being persecuted and, and literally wrapped in fur and stuck in stadiums to play death games with wild animals. They go from being crucified in mass numbers to being promoted by the guy living in the palace. Now, something like this doesn't happen overnight. So how, how does it happen? Well, let me tell you something about history. And I've said it maybe, maybe before or... I've said something like this. History doesn't happen in a vacuum. History builds on itself. With, with every event that you look at in history, and Emily Grace, I want you to think about this next time you're sitting in a high school history class and you're just bored out of your mind. What in the world does this have to do with Facebook and Instagram? Well, you, you don't even like Facebook probably. You're, huh? Face bags. What does that mean? You're making fun of old people now, aren't you? And I don't appreciate it. So you know why young people move from Facebook, right? Because their mamas are on Facebook. Yeah, I know. I've noticed that. But she's so funny and she's so good at it. But next time you're sitting in a boring history class and you think, what in the world does this have to do with anything? Well, some parts of history have to do with everything. And I've been trying to think, what, what would be a good example of this? And, um, you know, I live a preacher's life, and that's not always the most exciting thing. And if you don't believe that, just ask my wife and my kids. But um, so I, I read a lot. I read a lot of history. 
enjoy World War II history um, in particular. So let, let's talk about Adolf Hitler. Everyone knows Adolf Hitler? Not personally, I guess, but you know of him, right? So how is, how is it possible for a guy like Adolf Hitler to rise to power? You know, when you, when you, um, when you think about the first people who are put in these, um, these concentration camps, the first peoples who are, are rounded up, um, eventually Hitler starts killing gypsies. But the, the first peoples who are arrested were people who owned great art collections. They were, they were businessmen and women. They, they owned some of the most influential businesses and, um, uh, and, and companies uh, in, in the world. And they're rounded up and put in these concentration camps. How does a responsible thinking society of people let that happen? Well, to really sort of get at that, you have to go back to World War I and the Treaty of Versailles. Um, that's where the... Um, the central powers, which included, I think, Germany, Hungary, Hungary, Austria, the Ottoman Empire, and Bulgaria. So they are surrendering to the Allied powers. Well, Germany had to sign a separate treaty from the other countries. And in the, the treaty that Germany had to sign, I think it was Article 231, it, it became known as the Guilt of War Article. And, and in that part of the treaty, they had to take responsibility for damages and losses that accrued during the World War. So they had to agree to disarm and the world decided we're never going to have to fight Germany again. Um, they had to give back all of the territories that they had acquired from the war, like Austria. And um, they had to make war reparations. And there was a, a sum of money. How much was it? I think it was something like 130 billion Deutschmarks had to be paid to different entities, different companies, um, and some individuals. And that money translates into about 450 billion U.S. dollars today. So um, anybody in here ever owned a Porsche? Okay. So um, there was a 914 Porsche that my, my dad had one that was basically a Volkswagen. And it was produced in Great Britain because at the end of World War I and as a part of this Treaty of Versailles, 
some of the allied powers, including England, made a power grab and said, hey, I like that business. I think we'll take it. I like that business. think we'll take it. And so they took Porsche. They took Audi. And so when you think, okay, they're disarming, um, they're um, having to give back territory, they're having to pay billions of dollars as a government, <laughs> and now their industry is being taken from them. What ends up happening in a very short time is about half or more of the people of Germany become impoverished. Well, the Germans are no longer the barbarians that they are all the way back here during the Roman Empire. They didn't like it. And who would like it? So it's, it's not just that they've lost the war. There's a price to pay. The, the price becomes greater than... There, it's, it's, like, it's like owing MasterCard and Visa $150,000 and you're going to make minimum payments on that, you're never going to pay off that debt. You're going to die willing that debt to someone else. Well, that gives, that creates a pathway for a madman like Hitler to step up and say, I will restore the greatness of Germany, and I will make... I don't try to sound like I am, Hitler. Often sneaking, snogging, snigging. No. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Adderall's running out on me here. Um, I'll make Germany great again, and I will make those who have punished Germany, I will make them pay. And desperate people will do desperate things. And they literally saw their nation slipping away from them. And it, it made them do things or agree to things. You know that a madman thinks up and comes up with. My point is not to try to um, make you feel sorry for Hitler. I mean, Lord knows, I mean, none of us should. I'm just trying to show you that history doesn't happen in a vacuum. Um, History is built on events and the consequences of events. Um, And that's certainly true in the church. You know, the Berlin Wall, when Reagan stood in Berlin and said to, was it Gorbachev, tear down this wall? That didn't happen overnight. The events leading up to that were about 70 years in the making. Reagan just knew it was the right time. And none of his speechwriters wanted him to include that line. But he included it anyway. He's the great communicator. But that Berlin Wall came down overnight. But it didn't come down overnight. That was 70 years in the making. The same with church history. I mean, the transformation that we're talking about in the church where they go from being this persecuted group of people to being the preferred religion of, um, I almost said Great Britain, 
but um, of Rome, that didn't happen overnight. That's something that took time. Now, of course, you guys know that when, when we talk about church history in here, we don't have the time to talk about every event. We don't have the time to talk about every person. So what I'm trying to do in here is just, you know, give you some of the highlights and some of the people that I think are, are most important. So that's what we'll be doing tonight. And what I want to do tonight is I just want to kind of brush back just a little bit to last week and sort of open this file up in your mind and uh, remind you of a couple of events and a couple of people from last week that have really brought us to where we are. How many of you remember Emperor uh, Diocletian from last week? Talked about him. Okay, when he became emperor in 284, Rome's falling apart again. Rome is falling apart. Do you remember some of the circumstances around that? He took a, a rough hand to sort of get Rome back on its feet. Uh, one of the things that he did, you know, kind of this rough hand, is he, he felt like Rome was too big for one emperor to lead. So he broke it up into two parts. So now all of a sudden you have the, the Eastern Roman Empire and the Western Roman Empire. In the Eastern Roman Empire, you have a, a capital there that's built in the city of Byzantium which later becomes the city of Constantinople, which today is Istanbul. It's the capital of Turkey. Uh, Karen and I have been there before. Incredible place. Um, in, the, in the Western Roman Empire, the capital city is Rome. Okay, so you have these two cities, these two capital cities. All right. What happens here in, in that splitting of the, of the Roman Empire and the next couple of things we're going to talk about? And just honestly, just to say it, I don't want to sound like a history junkie, but to sound like a history junkie, the things that are happening right here are things that we still live with today. In the world and in the church, okay, one of those events, the battle at Malvian Bridge. You remember that? October 12, 312, um, you have these two generals because now you have the empire it's split into two parts, right? The Eastern Empire, Western Empire. Two generals going at it. Both of them make the claim to be the emperor. Um, Maxentius and Constantine. The battle of Malvian Bridge is... Emily Grace, you ought to know it. I'm going to pick on you all night, okay? You ought to know it because it's one of those battles that changes the course of history. Um, it would be like um, it would be like D-Day. Uh, Normandy, France. That's a world-changing event. Um, Gettysburg, world-changing event. The Battle at Milvian Bridge, Constantine defeats Maxentius, you know, Maxentius in a very non, 
sexy way of dying. He falls off the bridge and drowns. His body's pulled out, his head's cut off. A few days later, Constantine and his soldiers uh, go through Rome holding up Maxentius' head. That's a way of saying, I'm the emperor. What may be even more important than the battle on October 12th is the dream, the vision that Constantine had the night before. In that dream, he sees what we would call today the Christogram. It's an X and then what would look like a P together. He made them in the sign of a cross. But the, the X is really the chi, C-H-I, in the Greek word Christ. And the P is really a row that would make the R. And so he, he sees a vision of this symbol. And then he says, again, this is Constantine talking He says, he heard the voice of Jesus say, by this symbol, conquer. Okay, now look, I've read lots and lots about Constantine. I've I've read lots of historians that say, man, this is just his way of trying to bring the Roman Empire together. Um, Instead of grabbing one of their old gods and sort of recycling that, he could use this new Christian God and sort of get everybody you know, together around Jesus. Then I've read others who say, no, 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 this was definitely an authentic conversion. The only thing I can say is that something must have happened to this guy because the morning of October 12th, the morning of the battle, he called all of his men together and said, I am now a Christian. I've been converted to Christianity And before we go out into battle, I want everyone to put this Christogram, the Kai and the Row, on their shields. Now, after the battle is over, he credits the Christian God. And hang with me. Listen, I promise you we're going somewhere with this. I know the temptation is to let your eyes glaze over. That's why I'm going to give you my notes later. So just, just try to hang on to this as much as you can. After the battle is over... He says that it was the Christian God who gave him the victory and has now made him the emperor over Rome. A year later, he gives the Edict of Milan. Anybody remember what that's about? The Edict of Milan made it legal for a person to be a Christian. The Edict of Milan essentially ended all persecution of Christians throughout the Roman Empire. I mean, that's certainly a good thing, if nothing else. I mean, if the guy's just faking it, that's certainly a good thing. He he built churches. He said something, listen, that no one had ever said before, certainly no one in the Roman Empire. He said... Every man, uh, except he probably didn't do it in two syllables like I did. Every now and again, I catch my Southern English. Every man (laughs) had the right to worship the God of his own conscience. Those are good things. But he did some not so good things. Uh, For example, 
he claimed a title that made him not only emperor, you know, the emperor of the state, emperor of Rome, he took a title that made him the head of the church. So you thought Henry VIII was the first one to do that when he split from the Catholic church. No, no, no. Constantine declared he was the head of the church. He also starts a, a structure that the Roman Catholic Church will eventually adopt and make it their form of ecclesiastical government. They'll take a, a secular form of government and, and enforce that in the church. So Constantine, because he declared he was head of the state, head of the church, whatever he said went. He treated pastors and bishops like they were employees of the state. And so what he said went. He demanded total obedience. By the way, the model he's setting right here is the, the model the popes are going to eventually, you know, uh, embrace as their own. What he said went, it didn't matter if it contradicted with Scripture. Um, it didn't matter if it contradicted with the, the regular practices of the church. Whatever he said, that's what went. So, so listen, can you see the political mess we're heading into? Um, it gets rough. All right. So hold that intention with, with this that I'm about to say. I want to give you a glimpse at some other things that are going on that have a, a really big impact on the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is unraveling, okay? You, you get a guy like Diocletian in there, he kind of puts Band-Aids on the wound. It, it stops the bleeding for just a little bit, but man, then it, you just start leaking somewhere else. Y- years ago, uh, my dad was in the contractor equipment rental business, and um, he bought a dump truck, and I was, I was a little, I was maybe 10. He bought a dump truck and he had it sold. We had to go pick it up. And um, we picked it up, I think, in Alabama. I don't remember where in Alabama. We're riding back from Alabama. And there's, uh, again, I'm 10 years old. So this is about 20 years ago. <laughs> this is 40 years ago. 40 years ago. You didn't have a phone. This truck had a CB, but depending on when and where you were, that might be all right. It might not do you any good. He got a hole in the gas tank. And so we are about 100 miles from home. And so he's like, I've got to get this thing back home. So we stopped. We, we stopped at a, uh, some kind of little convenience store, we bought a bag of bubble gum like this big. It was on like a, it was on a Saturday or a Sunday. And I mean, you could not, you couldn't find anywhere open. So man, we're chewing this gum, <laughs> plugging that hole in that gas tank. Now I want you to know that we limped home 
with that dumb truck. And by the time we got, there wasn't this one hole. There, it just seemed like every time you plugged a hole, another plug would, would start. I don't, it's the craziest thing, but we got that thing home. We got it fixed too. But you plug one hole and that seems like two more open up. That's what's going on in the Roman Empire. You, you, you think you've got one thing fixed and then something else happened. Well, there, there are basically three main factors that are going into the unraveling. For, the first one is financial. Um, all politics is financial. Remember what the Clinton campaign said in, in his sec, uh, second election? It's the economy, stupid. It's usually the economy. Um, the economy has fallen apart in Rome. It's falling apart. Here's what you have going on. At one time, you have more people in the Roman Empire receiving some sort of aid, some sort of financial help from the government than you actually have taxpayers. So how long can that last? And part of the problem is you have a huge military and they've built a military that is about expanding the empire. The problem is when you go on the edges of the empire, I'm about to cough here. When you go on the edges of the empire, they've run into the Goths, the Huns, some really tough Central and Eastern European countries and the Roman government is not really able to expand. Plus, the government they already have, is, it's, it's just full of financial problems. And the military, they've been promised money. And if you're the emperor, you're going to pay them. Because if you don't pay them, when they come collecting, they're going to get their paycheck. And then they're going to walk away with your head. They had to pay the, the, the military. Plus... You got to feed these guys. You can't feed the military with hugs. You need grain and meat. And then that was just a huge drain on their economy. So what do you do? What do you do? You do what I hear some people in our government talking about today that really should read a, a history book, a world history book, would just change their mind on a lot of things. Print more money. Well, that's what the Romans did. Of course, they didn't print paper money. They minted coins. But in those coins, they stopped putting as much precious metal in those coins, and they started putting junk metal in there that didn't mean anything. So what does that do? That devalues the currency, which creates inflation, which brings the economy they had into a depression. The financial problems create all sorts of social problems. You have people starving you have people dying. Th think about in the cities, in the great cities of the Roman Empire, these people don't have gardens. They're depending on industry. So they're literally starving. Now you have people killing each other, stealing from each other. It, it's, it's falling apart. Those two drivers make them weak internally, which makes them vulnerable externally. The enemies on the outside start looking into Rome and see that place is in chaos. And so now they start meeting up with some of their, their enemies. They start getting attacked. 
Let me tell you about one or two of them. First, you have the Battle of Adrianople, or some people call it the Battle of Adrianopolis. This happens in 378. This is a battle between the Eastern Roman armies and the Goths. Does, uh, does this excite anyone? If it doesn't excite you, hang on, okay? The Goths, and when I say the Goths, I'm not talking about like the Goths they have over Hickory Ridge High School, you know, that wear black trench coats and stuff like that. These are Eastern European people that are barbarians and they're tough and they're basically tribes that grow into the size of nations. And they just whipped the Romans. It sent shockwaves throughout the Roman Empire that these Goths were able to put one of the Eastern armies down so easily. Now, the thing is, the Goths didn't want to run Rome. They defeat them, but they don't want to come in and take over. They just want to come in and be a part of things. They come in and to a large extent, they adopt Roman culture, Roman clothing. They wanted Roman educations, which at that time was the equivalent of having a Harvard and Yale and Ivy League education. And they didn't want to pay any of it. They wanted the Romans to pay for everything. Well, what's already happening in Rome? They're already about to go under. Um, some, some historians, and I mean like Roman historians, people, historians from that day say that the Battle of Adrianople was the first in the process or the first event in the process of the decline of the Western Empire of Rome. It's a part of the Gallic Wars and all that. You know, it's the Romans against the Goths and the Gauls and all of this. This is a part of that. Okay, all right. 452. One of the fiercest militaries in the history of militaries is sweeping across Central and Eastern Europe. It's really made up of about three or four city-states, but they're, they're, they're mostly led by the Huns. In particular, they're led by an old guy named Attila. Attila the Hun. And he is one bad dude. Okay. We're going to talk more about Attila later. But, but just imagine this, okay? He's sweeping across Central and Eastern Europe. Any of you following me? It's going to be a quiz when we get home about this tonight. All right, Nick? Write it all down. The Huns are attacking... These cities and villages, whoever they come across, they're just destroying them, taking everything they have, capturing them as slaves, raping, pillaging, plundering. That's what they're doing. Some of these people escape. So they run to the next city, the next town, and they say, Attila is coming. So what happens? It's like, um, it's like hurricane season. And 
you know, there's a category 10 barreling down on you. What do people do? They evacuate. When people hear that Attila is coming, they start evacuating. Now you have people by the thousands, the tens of thousands, running out of villages, out of tribes, out of some of the smaller cities. And where do you think they're going? They're going to the only place they think can stop Attila. They're going to Rome. And it's already falling apart. So now they have thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of migrant people who are running for their lives. But they just add to the chaos. And so now at an even greater pace, you have the Roman Empire that is, it's just, it's falling apart. All right. Take a deep breath. That's mostly for me. We come to the last emperor in the Western Roman Empire, a guy named Romulus Augustulus. You know, because it's Latin. And Latin is dead. It's a dead language. Thank the Lord it's dead. Um, I've heard someone say, Latin, Latin, hard as it can be, it killed the Romans, now it's killing me. Um, Augustulus didn't last very long because he was defeated by a German barbarian named Odiacer. Common spelling. O-D-O-A-C-E-R. Odiacer, again, was a barbarian and he became the king of Italy. And I, I can't, I, I can't, you can't over-exaggerate the shock that went through the Roman Empire. The world, really. Because even though the Western Empire had become so weak, no one could imagine a world without the Roman Empire in Rome. But that's gone. It, it, it just doesn't exist that way anymore and wouldn't for a long, long time. But the way it was, it's never restored back to that again. It, it's just different. Okay, some of the leaders who were in Rome, probably sen, uh, senators, I almost said sinners. Those things might be the same thing. Um, probably some senators they were able to get into the Caesar's palace, not the one out in Vegas, um, the one in Rome. And they capture the tiara of the Caesar, the crown. Not like a Minnie Mouse tiara, uh, Karen, that you and Annie wear whenever we go to the Magic Kingdom. Man, I wish this part was on Facebook Live. They also capture the purple robe. They sneak those out of Rome and get them to the Eastern Empire. 
and get those in the hands of the emperor there for safekeeping. All right. Hang on to that. Okay, the Roman Empire is unwinding. I want you to hold on to those things because I'm going to go back again. I mean, we've already gone up to about 490 AD, but I want to drop back um, to a good old Constantine here. And we're going somewhere with this, so, so hang on with me, okay? Still hanging on? All right, do this if you're hanging on. Um, Constantine did something earlier when he was the emperor of the Eastern Empire that really set up everything that happens later. Remember I told you that uh, history builds on itself. Nothing happens in a vacuum. Well, Constantine decides he's going to make the city of Byzantium his, his home city, Okay? And he's going to make it into a Christian city. So he goes into Byzantium, which was not much more than a village at that time. There's a little church there that later, under his son Constantine I, it's going to be built into a massive church called the Hagia Sophia. Karen, we've been there. Later it became, under the Ottoman Empire, it became a, uh, a Muslim mosque. And now it's a museum. Now what's really cool, what's really cool is what the Ottoman Empire did to deface the church actually preserved the church. Because what historians have been able to do is go in there and, okay, in the... We got time to chase a rabbit here. Let's take a side road. Um, when you when you watch something, say on um, Pompeii, the destru- uh, not Pompeii is it Pompeii? The place that was uh, destroyed by a volcano was that Pompeii, city of Pompeii. So when when you look there and they they're able to show you the ruins, do you know why those ruins are still there? Uh, because like if you if you're looking at them like like let's say on this wall right here, let's say all this wood is ru- it's ruins. It's like the original tiles and paintings that the the Roman people put on there. But then you, you see higher up, all that's gone. Or you look around the room, and a lot of the the walls are empty. But in the corners, there's still some tiles there. That that's because with Pompeii. When, they, uh, when the volcano erupted, all the ash, it came in and it just settled up into huge piles. And so the piles protected what was against that wall. But when people came in to get those tiles or bricks or tapestries, whatever it might be on a wall, when they came to get those for their own building projects and, you know, just take them and because why go cut? new stones when you go over there to that broken down house get all the stones there and just go build your house with them well when they go there all that rubble is built up there they think well we don't want to move that pile behind that pile is you know the old stuff the original stuff so what the ottomans did when they got into the Hagia Sophia 
they painted nature scenes because they thought it was an abomination to paint images. That's like a graven image. And so they painted over centuries old paintings that Christians put on these walls, you know, and like 900 AD or 1100 AD. Well, these restorers have gone in and they've, they've pulled some of that back and they find the original stuff that's in there. Well, all right, going back to Constantine. He goes into Byzantium, little church there that becomes the big church, the Hagia Sophia, but not in his lifetime. He goes into this church and he does what no Roman emperor had ever done. First, he went to church. If we could just get our leaders to go to church today, amen. Wish Facebook Live was happening right now here. Um, but when he walked into this church, instead of thanking the Roman gods for making him the emperor of Rome, he thanked the Christian God. And he dedicated the city of Byzantium that became Constantinople, that became Istanbul. He dedicated it to Jesus Christ. All right, we're doing great on time. We've got 25 minutes left. So let me tell you something kind of cool about Constantine, his baptism. We talked about his baptismal robes last week, right? Didn't we talk about that? So Constantine dies in 337, but a month maybe two at the most, before his death, he was baptized. He had not been baptized before. But he was so old and so sick, he was not able to be baptized in the, in the New Testament sense. The word baptized comes from a Greek word, baptizo, that means to dip under or to plunge. He's too old, too sick, too frail to be dipped or plunged under. So guess what the bishop of Constantinople or Byzantium did? He walked over to the baptistry waters, scooped it out with his hand, and sprinkled it over his head. Within three or four decades, people began to say, if that sprinkling was good enough for Constantine, it's good enough for me. That's when the church, probably a hundred years or so after Constantine's death, they began to sprinkle. And then eventually it moves to sprinkling infants, but that's left for a different Wednesday night. Okay. Still with me? All right. So before the fall of the Western Empire, You have two empires, essentially the Eastern and Western. So you have two capital cities, Constantinople or Byzantium and Rome. 
So in both of those places, maybe not so much in Byzantium, Constantinople, but certainly in Rome, you would have had multiple churches. But you would have had one church where, that's where the emperor goes. It's going to be bigger. It's going to be nicer. Eventually it becomes the Vatican. Well, you also have probably not a church the same size, but you have, um, like when I was a kid growing up, there were, Bap- there were Baptist churches on every corner, and then there was First Baptist Church. All those other churches probably built out of wood. First Baptist was built out of red brick. So there was a red brick Baptist church in Constantinople. And there's one church that stands out above the rest of them. Well, they each have a pastor. It's called bishops. Now, when we're talking about bishops here, we're still talking about the New Testament meaning for bishops. Bishops have not yet come to mean a pastor over pastors. In the New Testament, bishops, pastors, elders, preachers, they're all used interchangeably. They're the same office. Like I'm a bishop, technically, I mean, I guess. But I'm not a pastor over pastors. I'm just a a shepherd over one local church. But you have these bishops of these capital cities. And just because people are people, not because they were evil or any more evil than the rest of us, people are people. And what develops is this competition between them to see who's the number one bishop because whoever becomes the number one bishop becomes the pope. That's where this is going. So there's this competition or this sort of contest that happens between them. Okay. Eventually you have a new emperor. He's not really that big of a deal, but his name is Theodosius, T-H-E-O-D-O-S-I-U-S, T-H-E-O-D-O-S-I-U-S. By the way, Theo means God. You start having emperors who are given God's name because Christianity is legal, those kind of things. Anyway, he's the emperor. In 381, he wanted Christian pastors, bishops, to get together because he sees some problems. He sees some splintering. He sees some cult-like groups developing, and he wants to get these pastors together again to reaffirm the the beliefs that they had affirmed at the Council of Nicaea. Remember, Constantine told all these pastors, I want you guys to get together, decide what you believe about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and then sign off on it. I don't care what you believe. I just want to know what it is. I want everybody to be on the same page. Well, not everybody's on that same page. So he wants to have the Council of Constantinople. So... These bishops are invited there together, okay? The bishop of Rome at that time was a man named Domitius. 
And when Theodosius called this meeting of the bishops together to reaffirm what was agreed on at Nicaea, he did not invite Damasus. That's how his name is pronounced. I may have said that wrong, but it's Damasus. He only invited the bishops in the Eastern Empire, not the Western Empire. How do you think Damasus felt about that? Yeah, he didn't like it one bit. So, a year later, he decides to call the Council of Rome. He's going to have his own council. And he didn't invite the Eastern emperors to come to that. Now, now by the way, this is important, by the way. Why would Theodosius invite only the Eastern bishops and not the Western bishops? Remember what happened in 378 with the Goths? They're they're beating down the Western Empire. Theodosius thinks that the Western Empire isn't going to last. And so let's don't rock the boat. These guys are going to be gone in a couple of years. Then I can claim my bishop as the leader and... We'll be the church power seat. So don't, don't get them all that upset over there in Rome. Because again, the Goths are knocking on their doors. They're, they're not going to last. They're going to be gone soon, which is true. They are. Okay, but you've got Damasus. He's got the council of Rome. Um, gosh, man, I'm sorry. I missed an important part there. <laughs> Crank back your mind a minute. Let, let's go to this uh, council in Constantinople. These guys affirm beliefs. They, they do that. But they also make this statement. The bishop of Constantinople, and remember, I'm going to give you my, my notes. The bishop of Constantinople is only preceded by the bishop of Rome. That statement is to say that the only, the only bishop higher than the one in Constantinople is the one over in Rome. But the reason he says that is because he don't think the guy in Rome is going to be there but a couple more years. Any day now, he's expecting to get word back from the Western Empire that they're done. And so then they can just, you know, run the church out of Constantinople. Okay. Damasus has his church get together. And he made a couple of statements that truly has changed the church and still affects the church right now to this day. He declared that the primacy of the Holy Roman Church that had never been said before. Because nowhere in the New Testament is Rome called the holy city? What's the holy city? Jerusalem. I mean, Rome is referred to in Revelation as the city of that great whore, the devil, the serpent. Now he's calling Rome the holy city. He declared that the primacy of the holy Roman church was not based on a document decided upon at the Council of Nicaea under Constantine 
or the Council of Constantinople a year earlier or anywhere else. Instead, decisions and who's Pope and who is leader was based upon what Jesus Christ said to Peter in Matthew 16 at Caesarea Philippi. Can I read that to you? So Matthew 16, 13 through 18. By the way, if you go with me to Israel in, um, in September, we'll be going together to, the, to Caesarea Philippi. So here's Jesus. <laughs> Excuse me. So here's Jesus. He's with his disciples. And the background behind him you have a shrine to the pagan god of Pan. You ever heard of Pan? Half man, half goat. There are all these little alcoves there where people would put their statues and different things like that. All kinds of gods were worshipped there. There's a big cave there. It's a big hole in the ground. Can't get too close to it anymore. They have it guarded off, but you can look at it. Um, no one ever found the bottom of it. It was always called the gateway to hell. Part of that was because human sacrifices were offered to the different gods, including children. They were just thrown into that. So with that in the background, Matthew 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples... Who do the people say the son of man is? Um, What are people saying about me? What are you hearing? They replied, some say John the Baptist, who was dead at this time. They're like, wow, resurrected guy. Um, Others say Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. That, That would be a great compliment I mean, it doesn't get out who Jesus is, but that'd be a great compliment. That would be like um, me saying, hey, what, what are people out there saying about me? Man, some people think you're Greg Laurie. Some people think you're whoever. Some people think you're Billy Graham. Wow. A great compliment. But then he asked them, who do you say that I am? You, you've been with me now for a year, year and a half, maybe close to two years. Who do you say that I am? You, you were with me, um, you know, when I calmed the seas. You're out there on that boat on the Sea of Galilee. We'll go out on the Sea of Galilee in a boat. Um, you, were out, you thought you were going to drown. And I spoke and the winds and the waves stopped. You were with me when... Uh, that funeral procession went by that day and there's a widow burying her only child, a son, an adult son. Now she has no one to take care of. You were there when I stopped the funeral procession and brought that guy back to life. You've seen me cast out demons. You were there with me in, um, uh, by the Sea of Galilee when there's a crowd of Five to 12,000 people that are hungry. There's nothing to feed them except, you know, a number two combo at Captain D's, a couple of pieces of fish and five hush puppies. And I multiplied those, fed everyone, and then all of you had a doggy bag left over. 
So what, what do you say? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. It's like, who else could you be? And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, no longer Simon. You are Peter. And on this rock, which means pebble, not the boulder, not the cornerstone, not the foundational stone, You're a pebble and I will build my church and the gates of hell, the pit over here. Jesus points over there and says, all of this, this is from the pit of hell and it smells like smoke. None of this will be able to stop my church. The, The gates of Hades will not overcome it. So the biggest problem with Damasus here is He's just giving a terrible interpretation of what Jesus really said. He, he says that Jesus would build his church on Peter, but that's not what Jesus said at all. What Jesus said is upon this profession of faith, on this kind of faith, I will build my church. I'll, I'll give you five or six reasons next week when we get started for why this is not right. But one of, one of those is that n- nowhere, nowhere in Scripture is there any talk of succession and how leaders would be decided. In, in the New Testament, when, you, when, when Peter and Paul and John and those guys, when, when they're done, when, when the Scriptures are written out, pastors are pastors are pastors are pastors. There is no hierarchy um, and the Pope will later claim that what he says go, that he is infallible, that he doesn't make mistakes. Well, Paul and Peter get together after the Jerusalem Council, and Paul gets all over Peter for the fact that he's trying to make people become Jews and be circumcised before they can be Christians. Um, I mean, that puts all kind of holes in the, the Pope's plan there. Um, but he doesn't stop there, Damasus. He goes on to say that Rome is the holy city because Peter and Paul ended up in Rome They're martyred in Rome. Peter in particular, because that's where he's trying to make the connection. Peter was, he preached in Rome. He was arrested in Rome, tortured in Rome, died in Rome, buried in Rome. Buried under our church. I mean, the Vatican claims today that Peter is buried under the Vatican church. Therefore, all bishops in Rome are in succession of Peter. If you're not a Roman bishop, you're never going to be the leader. You have to be here. That group of bishops eventually becomes the cardinals. 
So Damasus died. That's when Leo I became the bishop of Rome. He was an aristocrat and you know, a part of the upper class. He became the first pope. He added to what Damasus said. Okay, listen, because this is, this is the, the origins of where the pope comes from. He proclaimed that he was the preeminent bishop of all Christianity. Not just the bishops, but all Christians. Everywhere there are Christians. He's over them. He's in charge. And it's based on the fact that he's following in the footsteps of Peter. Now, not everyone went for this. I mean, there were some people that pushed back. The problem was that Leo did some things that were pretty good. Uh, He did some things that helped the people. He did a few things that endeared the people to him. Uh, There's just one of them I want to tell you about. Okay, in 452, you remember who's ripping up the world at that time? Attila the Hun. So Attila is outside Rome. Leo is thinking, okay, We're all going to die anyway. Let me go see if I can change this guy's mind. So he goes out to meet with Attila. And he told Attila that he couldn't attack the holy city of God. That this is where God lives. And Attila was impressed by Leo. And so what he told his men is this. You can go into the city for 14 days And loot it and take anything you want. But you can't hurt one person there. So for the next two weeks. The Huns. His army. They go in and they take. Anything and everything they want. They eat off the city. They. But they don't kill anybody. They don't rape anybody. At least as far as Attila went. And listen. If if Attila gave you an order. You followed it. Because you didn't want to have to deal with him personally. So after 14 days, Attila and his Huns, it sounds like a hard rock band, doesn't it? Attila and the Huns, they leave. And the people feel like they've been saved. And they're willing to let some of these things that he's saying about the church, they're willing to let them slide. But how is that possible? How is, that, how is this possible? How are people willing to give up so much control? The, the answer to that really is that ever since Constantine's conversion, becoming a Christian in the Roman Empire became the thing. You didn't want to have a different religion than the emperor. And it became increasingly hard to be a good citizen doing business in the Roman Empire if you were not a Christian. So what happens is you have all of these people joining the church with no proof of conversion. I grew up in the South. 
Not the dirty South, but the South. And I would say that North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, that's the buckle of the Bible belt. And when I was a kid, everybody went to church. That's what you did. Culturally, that's what you did. If you were a business person in the community, you needed to be a part of the church. The church was a great place to network with people. It's where you got to know people. If you went to the right church, you could get connected to the right people. So churches in the South were full of people that were members of the church, but really couldn't give any proof at all of their conversion to Christ. That's what happened in Rome. That's also what opens the door to all sorts of pagan things coming into the church. Statues and Hail Marys. Deciding who you're going to pray to and who does that. Who receives communion and who doesn't. I mean, it, it's just the beginning of, of all sorts of things. And People accepted this because, again, there was no true conversion and they had no idea what the scriptures said and many of them didn't care. It was a cultural thing, not a following Jesus thing. And so the people who rejected this were outnumbered, overruled. So what, what truly happens here? Some of it under Constantine. Constantine sort of gets the ball rolling. But what happens here is now you have the church modeling itself after the leadership style and structure of the world. That's a big problem. That's a big problem. And let me tell you something. That's not just a problem then. That's a problem today. I'm not talking about videos. I'm not talking about movie clips in church. I'm not talking about style of music. I'm talking about styles of leadership. And what you see developing in the church here is an ecclesiological structure that's based on how the Roman government works. And so the Pope doesn't even become just a pastor among pastors or a shepherd to the people. He becomes the head of the church which eventually becomes the head of the state. And, and listen, I wish I could tell you that it gets better, but it doesn't. This kind, of, this kind of government, this kind of turning away from the scriptures, this taking the scriptures out of people's hands, because that's what happens. For a while, people are gonna be able, able to access God's word but it's going to be taken away from them. And rather than being told and taught what the scriptures say, you get a list of the doctrines of the church. Instead of learning how to have an intimate prayer time with God, you learn how to recite prayers. And it sends the church, it sends the world into the dark ages. Historians don't like to call it the dark ages, but that's exactly what it is. And so it's going to be a long time before the church 
really gets what I would say is better. Um, I read a lot of leadership stuff. I, I read a lot of secular things. And there's some things in books that I read that I would say are best practices. But best practices for your business, for the church, your life, your family, what would be called best practices are not best practices if they contradict what the scriptures say. The best practices are what you read in the scriptures. Because, listen, I didn't grow up Catholic. Maybe you did. But if you grew up Baptist like me, you're tempted to think, well, man, these Roman Catholics, they just, they're just all crazy. Well, let me tell you something. Every business meeting that I ever was a part of in a Baptist church or led as a pastor in a Baptist church was governed by Robert's Rules of Order. I've read through the New Testament many times, and I've never seen Robert's Rules of Order listed there. In the Baptist church I grew up in and the Baptist church that I pastored, the deacons, you know where deacons come from? Not the pit of hell and smell like smoke. That's not where they come from. What? What? (laughs) The demon deacons. Be careful. You got a demon deacon sitting right back there to your left. Um. Is it, is it Acts 7 or Acts 8, maybe Acts 8, where a group of, um, group of people come to Peter and the other, the other, they come to the apostles. And there's a problem with how the widows are being served and treated. And the biggest problem was you had the apostles trying to do most of that. And they came and said, listen, you guys need to be preaching let us serve the widows and the orphans. Let us serve the tables. Now think about that. These apostles learned under Jesus, the one who, Terry, he cleaned their feet. Talk about take, being a servant. He took the role of a slave. That's what they knew. And so these, there were men who were elected as deacons not to be a board of directors in a church. They were elected to serve the tables, serve the people. But in most Baptist churches today, most Methodist churches, most Presbyterian churches, you have a board of deacons or a board of elders that may or may not read their Bible at all, but they're business leaders, they're civic leaders, and they come into the church and they run it like a board of elders. And the only thing that their real bishop or their real pastor or their real real preacher, their real elder, the only, he, he has no say and no leadership at all. That's not biblical either. So the church was in a mess. 
And that's where we'll pick up next week. Anything you want to ask about or push back on? It's a bunch of stuff, isn't it? I, yeah, yeah, I see a lot of similarities. I'll tell you the biggest, the biggest place that I see this, um, I see it in preachers. I have to guard against it myself. Um, preachers are put, okay, look. Some churches live by a motto of, Lord, you keep him humble, we'll keep him broke. Some of them treat the pastor like a rock star. I think both of those are wrong. I think one of the ways that you take financial temptation away from pastors is you, is you, you look in your congregation and you find the people in, in your church that professionally... Um, he would fit into that group, doctors, lawyers, and pay him on that scale. Not in the millions, of course, but I, th- I, think, I think pastors, prob- give them, give them a, a wage where they have, they have money to go on vacation. They can buy a car, not a Maserati, Porsche, yeah. Um, pay pay them pay them a good wage, um, but don't treat them like a rock star. Um, you know, I don't I don't know when I've said this the last time, but I'll I'll say it again now, or I don't even know if I've ever said it to you like this before. But I, I, see, I see pastors that are younger than me. They walk around in their church or I see them at a conference somewhere and they have an entourage of people around them. What a load of crap. An entourage. Jesus didn't have an entourage. He had 12 disciples that followed him everywhere he went. And he wasn't, he wasn't treating them like they were someone special. Um, uh, I, you're 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 never you're not, you're never going to see me, and you should never see any pastor. You're never going to see me walking around with some young preacher boys following me, carrying my Bible, meeting me out in the parking lot to get my book bag and my books and carry all my stuff into my office. There's never going to be somebody that goes out to my car and cranks it up for me in the summertime to get it cool, so it'd be cool when I'm in it, or cranks it up in the wintertime and gets the heat going. Um, so that I'm not cold for a little while. That's just, that's garbage. That's leadership by the world. And you know, the disciples, they were hoping for that. I mean, when Jesus and his disciples are making their turn to go into Jerusalem where Jesus is gonna be crucified, and I'm sorry about using the C word earlier, crap. I, I shouldn't say it like that. Um, I'm I'm sorry for being disrespectful in here and to you. But 
when Jesus and his disciples are making that turn toward Jerusalem, where he's going to be crucified, some of his disciples were talking to each other about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Who's going to be the cabinet? Who's going to be the, the, um, the chief of staff? Who's going to be in charge? And Jesus stops them and says, hey, listen, guys, you're talking about leadership the way the Romans talk about it. That's the way they're over here in the marketplace talking about leadership. You're not going to be that kind of leader. And then he talks about them carrying their own cross. And then when they get up and they have their last meal together, what does Jesus do, Terry? He washes their feet. He says, this is the kind of leader you're going to be. He tells them, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom to buy other people out of their slavery. Jesus wouldn't let people serve him. And that's why those disciples in Acts 8 or Acts 7, whatever it is, that's why they're having such a hard time letting go of the tables. Look, Peter, there's people out here you need to preach to. Uh-uh, I'm not, I'm, don't, uh-uh, this table. Look, we'll get the tables. The way we need you to serve is we need to go out there and preach. I can't preach like that. You can. Let us get the tables. But that servant mindset was such a part of them that that's all they knew, and that's missing. That, I, that's a problem. People look more at something Jim Collins has written on leadership, which has great stuff to say about leadership, but they know more about what Jim Collins has to say to business leaders than they know about what Paul had to say to Timothy and other pastors in 1st, 2nd Timothy and in Titus. That's a big problem. It's, it's, a, it's a big problem that pastors are afraid to talk about church history. You know, a couple of weeks ago when I was in Orlando, some of my buddies who have been watching these talks, they're like, man, I never knew some of that stuff. I'm like, you've never taken a church history class? I mean, and then they'll, they might say something like, my people are not interested in that. I'm like, you're wrong. They are interested in it. You're not interested in it. And so you just assume that they won't be. But whether they're interested in it or not, they need to know it. They need to hear it. They need to know that you know it. And so, yeah, you know, on Wednesday nights, I don't have near the people in there learn about church history as I do in other places. But, of course, Annie reminded me this past week that more people watched. um, They viewed that video from here. There were more people that viewed that than actually came to church on Sunday mornings. I mean, people somewhere are watching that. Um, I think I think that's a problem. I think it's a problem. You know, I, I, I'm I'm amazed. Now, now look, look, look. I'm nobody. Okay, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not some guy on TV. I, I'm I'm not that. I I know that. Okay, but I watch those guys sometimes. And I just can't believe what I'm hearing. Sometimes I can't believe what I'm not hearing. But sometimes I just think a simple New Testament survey class in undergraduate at Gardner-Webb would have taken care of that heresy you're preaching right there. 
I'm amazed at the lack of training that pastors have anymore. I'm amazed by that. I'm not just trying to be a puffed up, I went to college and seminary guy, but I'm telling you, the clergy needs to be trained. Now, there's a problem with where clergy are being trained. What I think you're going to see happen over the next few years is that churches are going to begin to do theological training themselves. Harvard, Yale, Dartmouth, Duke, Brown, go on down the line. Every, except for Pittsburgh, every Ivy League school in the United States, and then if you jump across the pond and go to Oxford and Cambridge, all of those schools started out of churches to train their clergy. I think you're going to see theological education come back into the local church. Local churches are going to start teaching New Testament, New Testament theology, Old Testament, church history, because where else are you going to learn it? I mean, schools that have traditionally done that, they're going by the wayside. I see a lack of commitment. I, I joke about it, but sometimes it's not a joke. I, I joke I've, I've said, you know, um, when people ask me, have you ever thought about quitting? I say every Monday morning, but I don't really mean that. I'm just kind of kidding with that. But yeah, I've thought about quitting. What I can't get away from is the call. I'm called to something. I'm called to the ministry. I can't get away from that call. I see guys that walk away from that call all the time. You know, we're going to talk about this next week, so I'll say this and I'll, I'll pray and let you guys go. The council that meets at Constantinople, we're going to talk about them in just a few minutes next week. If you read somebody or listen to somebody that really knows how to tell the story of history and you hear them talk about the men who show up at Constantinople, they come in, some of them have no eyes. They're missing limbs. They have sword and dagger cuts all over their body. They live through the persecution. And so in a way, if you, if you just try to imagine what that group looks like, you can't help but just mar- marvel at them. And what they endured to be faithful, not recanting. And then you have guys today that walk away from their calling because they can't buy a new minivan. Or they're having a hard time dealing with the chairman of the deacons. Where's your call, man? Who are you called to? How pathetic. What if you really had to suffer persecution for your call? I mean, our Chinese brothers and sisters deal with that stuff every day. A good friend of mine who's a missionary to China, 
walked into a, a Chinese church one night. It was in a warehouse. No cars in the parking lot. He walked in. There's no lights on. He's thinking, man, there's, there's going to be nobody in this place. A few candles lit up. His eyes started adjusting to the light. There were hundreds and hundreds of people in that warehouse being real quiet to see who that was that just walked in the warehouse, make sure it's not the police. They're in there hiding, but they're in there so they can hear the word of God being taught. And I joke, like I think you joke with me when the sermons are long. But uh, do y'all know Karen McGurk, our accountant, our bookkeeper? Her her husband uh, her husband David is a pastor. He's gone to Africa a number of times to preach there. He said the first time he he went there to preach, he preached a thirty minute sermon, and then he sat down, and the pastor walked up and said, "Is that all?" He said, "Some of these people have walked ten miles." across the desert to be here. They're expecting you to preach for a couple of hours. And he said he just stood up and preached every sermon he could remember for the next two hours. I mean, I don't want our country to be like China. I don't want people to have to walk 10 miles to get to church. But Lord have mercy I've got a runny nose today. I'm not going to go to church. You go to work. Because you're expected to be there. You have to come to church because you want to be here. You can't stand to be away from the people. That Chinese church I was telling you about. Um, the pastor of that church. I think there ended up being like 400 people there that night for that meeting. All hiding in that warehouse. And the Chinese pastor said. Pray, pray for us. Pray that we become like America. He said, I'm going to pray for you, but I'm not going to pray that you become like America. I'm not, I'm not going to pray that you become as comfortable as American Christians have become. We just sort of take God, take him when we want him, when we really need him, when things are desperate. But then other times we don't really have much time for him. He's not more important than the tea time or the lake or any number of things. He said, I'm not going to pray for you like that. You asked me. <laughs> let, me uh, let me pray for us, and I'll take this mic off. You guys are welcome to go, but if you want to hang around and ask something else, you're welcome to do that too. I'll stay as long as you want to. Although Diego needs me for a couple minutes at some point before he leaves. Diego, you getting any sleep at night? Got that new baby at home? Okay, some, some. Lord, thank you for our study tonight and um, just a time to learn and be together and talk and try to understand some things about the past, knowing that what we do today as a church, this doesn't happen in a vacuum. Instead, our, our church is built on generations of believers 
Lord, some who got it right and some who got it really wrong. Lord, help us to be not just readers and learners of history, but real students that put into practice the things that we learn, that we use the things we learn here in these lessons to steer clear of some things that might hurt us and destroy us. Lord, we pray for those who are struggling. We pray for those who are sick and hurting. We pray for those especially who are lost without your son, Jesus. It's in his great name we pray. Amen.